Welcome to Navarro Live. I'm Michael Walker, and we will be once again devoting the whole show to the Gaza war and the horrific scenes we've been seeing over the weekend. Um, coming up on the show, we will look at a shocking interview with the Israeli ambassador to the UK and the Tory MP threatening to prosecute the government over their position on the Gaza war. So one MP who is showing some bravery. Um, do stay tuned for all of that. Hopefully I'll be joined by Aaron Bastani later in the show. Israel's bombardment and siege of Gaza has continued for over a week. Over 2,800 Palestinians have now been killed. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. They say nearly 800 of them are children and that nearly 10,000 people have been wounded in attacks. Israel's bombardment is a response to the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israeli civilians. The Israeli Defense Force say that the assault left more than 1,400 dead, including children and the elderly. 199 Israeli hostages are also believed to be being held by Hamas in Gaza. Palestinians from the north of Gaza continued to travel south after Israel ordered them to leave their homes to avoid being caught up in an imminent ground invasion of the territory. But even fleeing civilians haven't been able to escape the violence. This footage was filmed by an ITV cameraman on Friday. It shows dozens of Palestinians on two flatbed trailers towed by a white Volvo truck as they leave Gaza City. ITV was able to confirm that just an hour later, that convoy was destroyed, many of its passengers dead. No media outlet has yet been able to confirm what caused the explosion, but according to the Financial Times, analysis of video footage rules out most explanations aside from an Israeli airstrike. Despite Gazans being told to move to the south of the Gaza Strip, even if they do get there safely, the region isn't proving safe for them either. This footage shows people digging through the rubble of a missile strike in the city of Khan Yunis, just 10 kilometers from the Egyptian border. You can see the huge crater left by what's being reported as the bombing of a residential building in the city. Hamas has claimed that the bodies of more than a thousand Palestinians remain trapped under rubble across Gaza and still stuck in the north are medical professionals and patients who are too unwell to move. Ghassan Abusita is a doctor with Médecins Sans Frontières. This is a voice note he sent to a colleague from the Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. Arwa, it's absolutely horrendous. The bodies are stacked up. People are too afraid to bury their dead. I had to evacuate Lauda Hospital yesterday when the Israeli army warned that it was going to target the hospital and the hospital had two hours to evacuate. We made sure that the patients were in ambulances and then we left. When you drive by one of the targeted buildings, there's the stench of decaying bodies. They no longer are able to take the bodies out from underneath the rubble. We drove past um, the Indonesian hospital and as you pass by the morgue, there are piles of bodies just wrapped in shrouds and put against the corner because the, the morgue is overflowing. And the same in the morgue here at uh, Shifa Hospital. Pending public health catastrophe at Shifa Hospital, there are thousands if not tens of thousands of people who have flocked to the hospital. They're sleeping in the grounds. They're sleeping on the corridors between the patient beds in the wards. People are absolutely terrified. And so they think this is the safest place. One of our plastic surgery colleagues, a lovely man whom I'd worked with since the 2009 war, just went to escort his sister to his house where 30 of his family members had stayed. He decided to stay with them overnight, and at one o'clock, he was killed with all of his family. 
And that's, you know, that message about people being killed with all of their family, we've been hearing about so many people, multi-generations, entire families wiped out, right? And we keep hearing, oh, this is proportionate. This is Israeli following the, the laws of war. Well, if you're bombing civilian buildings and wiping out entire families, I would suggest that you must not be following those laws, right? This, this is not demonstrating a proper um, attention, a proper regard to separating civilians from combatants. If you're constantly bombing hospitals, what does that look like? What does that mean? Now, it's not just bombing. Because of Israel's blockade, Palestinians remain unable to leave the Gaza Strip. That includes via the Rafah crossing with Egypt, which is not under Israel's control, but which was closed after it came under Israeli shelling last week. In an interview with 60 Minutes, US President Joe Biden was asked about that border. Are you asking Israel to establish a humanitarian corridor in that area or get humanitarian supplies? Yes, our team is talking with them about that and uh, whether there can be a safe zone. We're also talking with the Egyptians, uh, whether there is an outlet to get these children and, and women out uh, um, into out of the, that area at this moment. But it's, it's hard. You would like to see a humanitarian corridor that allows some of the two million Gazans out of the area? Yes. You would like to see humanitarian supplies brought into Gaza? Yes. So you do not agree with the Israeli total siege of the Gaza Strip? I'm confident that Israel is going to act under the major, the, the rules of war. There, There's a standards that democratic institutions and countries will go, go by. And so uh, I'm, I'm confident that there's going to be an ability for the innocents in Gaza to be able to have access to medicine and food and water. Now, I don't know why he's confident, right, that Israel is going to follow the rules of law. I've just got some quotes here for you I want to read to you, right? So an Israeli official told newspapers, Gaza will eventually turn into a city of tents. There will be no buildings. An IDF spokesperson has said hundreds of tons of bombs have been dropped on Gaza. The emphasis is on damage, not on accuracy. We've got one from Israel's defense minister. We are imposing a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we will act accordingly. Israel's energy minister. No electrical switch will be turned on. No water hydrant will be opened and no fuel truck will enter until Hamas freed hostages. So a clear act of collective punishment. And Joe Biden still says, I'm confident the laws of, rule, the, the, the laws of war will be followed. Why? You know, sometimes when people say things, you should believe them. If they're saying that in public, what do you think they're saying in private? Now, going back to that Joe Biden interview, there was another interesting part. Now here, Biden presses Israel to forge a path towards a Palestinian state. So he says this. Would you support Israeli occupation of Gaza at this point? I think it'd be a big mistake. Look, what happened in Gaza, in my view, is Hamas and the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all the Palestinian people. And uh, I think that uh, it would be a mistake to, uh, for Israel to occupy Gaza again, we did, but to going in and taking out the uh, the extremists, the uh, Hezbollah is up north, but Hamas down south is a necessary requirement. Do you believe that Hamas must be eliminated entirely? Uh, yes, I do. But there needs to be a Palestinian authority. There needs to be a a path 
to a Palestinian state. And that was a fairly different tone, I think, to what Biden has been sort of striking over the past week. He seems to have been, you know, egging on essentially war crimes. But there he's saying, I mean, you know, you can watch that cynically and say there needs to be a path to a two-state solution. There hasn't been a path to a two-state solution for over 20 years because Israel refused to continue expanding or to stop, sorry, refused to stop expanding its settlements in, in the West Bank, which meant that any peace process was always just a non-starter. Right. Um, Biden, they're saying, though, that he's against an occupation. I was somewhat surprised about because I don't really see how else Israel would eradicate Hamas, which they have suggested they want to do, other than an occupation of Gaza. So I'm not exactly sure what Biden is angling for. I think probably he doesn't know what he's angling for either. Right. It, it seems to me that many sides in this situation don't really know what they are are looking for. I think, you know, Israel's ideal is that they can kick out everyone to Egypt and never let them back in. Whether or not that's going to be possible um, remains to be seen. Of course, it should be absolutely opposed because that would be an act of ethnic cleansing. Now, the Rafah crossing into Egypt still remains closed. That's despite reports in the US media today that briefly indicated the crossing would reopen. Um, those reports caused dual Palestinian-Egyptian nationals to gather there, but later um, it turned out those reports were not true. Meanwhile, Israel has increased its presence at the border with Lebanon after exchanges of fire between the IDF and Hezbollah. Israel has called for the evacuation of Israeli citizens, falling within a two-kilometer radius of that border. Canada's foreign minister has now advised Canadian citizens to leave Lebanon as tensions rise. Speaking in the Knesset, which is Israel's parliament, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this. We are preparing for the continuation of the war in the south, and we are also prepared in the north. We are making sure that we provide assistance to our people in the home front to provide both protection and assistance. We are all united. We all stand united behind the IDF, all of us. And it needs to be manifest both in actions and in words. And it must not be manifest in the worlds that should not be expressed and uttered. We stand behind our soldiers, our fighters, and behind all the security, relief, and medical forces. Also in that speech, Netanyahu said this, the nation is united towards one goal, victory. We will triumph because it's about our very existence in this region, which is fraught with dark forces. Hamas is part of the evil axis of Iran and Hezbollah. They aim to plunge the Middle East into an abyss of chaos. Now, many around the world understand who Israel is facing. They comprehend that Hamas represents a new version of Nazism. Just as the world united to defeat the Nazis and ISIS, so it must unite to defeat Hamas. Now, we are going to talk about this sort of at various points in the show, but this idea you know, that Hamas's attack represents an existential threat to Israel is, in my view, just false. Now, it was, a, it was horrific. The attack was horrific. It was brutal. Hundreds of civilians were targeted and were killed. You know, it, it's, it, it's terrible. And of course, the Israeli public want to respond in some way to that. But the idea that this is an existential threat to Israel, which is the most powerful country in the Middle East when it comes to its military, right, is, is ridiculous. This is a terrorist threat or I mean, a militant, militants sort of um, committing war crimes. It's, it's, it's a threat to the safety of the people of Israel, but it's not an existential threat to Israel, right? And I mean, if we're frank, the reason this attack was able to be carried out so successfully, I mean, successfully on the terms of what they were trying to achieve, obviously it was, it was, it was tragic what, what happened. The reason it was able to be carried out with that degree of success was because the Israeli army was, was completely complacent. So the idea that this is an existential threat to Israel, I just don't buy. Israel could stop this happening again by not being so complacent or potentially by restarting a peace process. Obviously, 
We know that Netanyahu has had a strategy of essentially strengthening Hamas because he thinks that they are, you know, they put Israel on less pressure, under less pressure to make any concessions because they don't want to work with the Palestinian Authority because the Palestinian Authority, that is part of a peace process whereby Israel comes under pressure to remove its settlements from the West Bank instead of expanding them. He actually prefers negotiating with Hamas because they don't engage in the peace process to such a degree. Um, now, the consequences of that have become very apparent and very tragic for many Israelis. Um, let's go back to the situation on the ground in Gaza. Now, earlier today, I spoke to Rohan Talbot. He's Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at Medical Aid for Palestinians. Um, I started by asking him about what his organization's team in Gaza was seeing on the ground. It's clearly an incredibly difficult situation for all of them. We have a team of about 20 people in Gaza who live uh, across different areas. Um, most of them are now displaced from their homes and living either with relatives or, or in other places. Um, they're still trying to work and continue to do the work that they do. Um, despite those circumstances, some have chosen to stay in their homes, even in areas that have been um, told to evacuate. Um, the situation that they see it is, is dire. Um, food is running out, water is running out, electricity is not available except for those who can access a generator. Um, hospitals are overflowing and um, it's a crisis that they say they've never seen before. Uh, and of course, they're, they're used to dealing with crises. What is the biggest threat to people in Gaza right now? I mean, obviously, both are, are huge. But, the, you know, the siege when it comes to sort of water, electricity and, and resources or the bombing campaign. What is posing the biggest challenge, um, let's say, to your staff on the ground? I mean, it's difficult to, to choose between bombing and, and siege, I guess. Um uh, the immediate and, and terrifying um, prospect that everyone has is um, is the potential for a, for a, 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 an explosive uh, a, an explosive death. There are members of my team and, and our staff whose family members um, have been killed in their homes without warning because of the bombardment that is across every single area of Gaza at the moment. Um, but also, you know, one of my colleagues was saying that he queued for two hours for one piece of bread each for each member of his family. You know, the shortages are really extreme. There are, are members of uh, of our team who say that they are struggling to access water um, or have been moved to shelter. Some of them have been moved four times. So um, colleagues have said that it's either a quick death or a slow death at the moment, which is, is terrifying on all fronts. Israel over the weekend said they have turned on um, water in southern Gaza. That's a concession of theirs. I mean, is that real? Is there now running water in, in southern Gaza? And to what extent is that a, a concession that that will matter to people on the ground? It's not not a, a solution in, in any way. Even at the best of times, Israel um, provides about 20% of Gaza's water. Um, the water taps have been turned on in certain areas. There is a minimal flow in some places. Um, but the challenge is not whether the water is coming in, but it's actually electricity and fuel. If it's brought to the border, then there are no trucks that are able to safely go and pick up uh, that water and take it take it on. Um, to the people that need it. There's no electricity in order to be able to pump it into the tanks um, of people's homes. And therefore, um, you know, it, it's not a solution. It's not a solution because the, the tap is still effectively closed off for everything else, electricity, fuel, water, um, food, uh, medical aid, etc. So there are still people right now in shelters across Gaza who don't have water. In UNRWA, schools are reporting that they don't have water. And as you all know, uh, the grim reality is that the average person can last without water for three days. 
Um, we've heard reports from family members of our colleagues that, um, that that they've had to boil water that they're able to get up from like family wells or local wells. Um, but of course, gastroenteritis and uh, and communicable diseases are a huge problem. And there are children who then can't get the medicines and other people who can't get the medicines if they fall ill, fall Ill because they're drinking contaminated water. There's no sewage pumping going on. There's no desalination because there's no electricity. So there's no there's no relief or let up um, that anyone has reported uh, amongst our staff. On Friday, the Israelis told 1.1 million people in northern Gaza to flee, to leave. Um, to the south of the territory. Do you have a, a sense of how many people have followed those orders? How many people have left to go to the south? It's difficult to know because, to be perfectly honest, the people who would normally be counting um, within Gaza have been displaced themselves. So before that um, evacuation order was issued, there were more than 400,000 people um, had already fled their, uh, their homes as a result of um, the bombing and the fear that they had that they would die um, if they remained in their homes. Um, a million people have been told to leave. It's very difficult to calculate or, um, how many will have gone. I think the UN is currently saying that up to a million people have left from various places. Some of those already displaced. Some of them, uh, some of them displaced in the south as well. It has to be said that there is no safety in the south. And in actual fact, when I spoke to my colleagues earlier, they were reporting that some people who have fled from the north um, to southern areas because of this uh, evacuation order and the, the fear of the bombardment and the and the land invasion, have actually found themselves firstly entering shelters that, that have no space or capacity um, or resources to take on additional people, but also haven't found it safe in the south. The bombardment is still continuing. And so actually have decided that actually they would rather um, return to their homes um, and, and take their risks in their houses in Gaza City or uh, in cities up in the north. Um, so it's impossible at the moment to say how many people have actually left and stayed gone. Um, but certainly it's a, a mass movement of people like we haven't seen in Gaza before. The people who are ignoring those orders to to evacuate and are staying in the north, is there certainty that that's always out of choice? Or is there a sense that potentially Hamas are stopping people leaving? Obviously, they've told people not to follow those evacuation orders. The Israelis are claiming they're they're basically stopping people. Um, go to the south. I suppose they'd probably say it was human shields or whatever. I mean, to what extent is there any evidence that Hamas is stopping people move? I've asked my team this this question. Obviously, they're distributed across um, Gaza, and, and as far as they've seen, there's no actual evidence that um, uh, uh, that that anyone's been stopping people moving south. In actual fact, what you will find is that um, IDPs who have been fleeing south have themselves come under attack, and you will have probably seen the reports on the BBC. And in other areas that there was a strike on a convoy of people um, moving south uh, in which uh, a large number of people, including children, were killed in an Israeli airstrike. Actually, there are people who have remained in their homes and they've remained in their homes um, for the clear reason that they firstly don't believe it to be um, safe in southern areas of Gaza, which evidence suggests that it's not. But also for understandable reasons, given Palestinian national history, they believe that leaving their homes um, has the potential that they wouldn't be able to ever return. A million people leaving their homes um, during the Nakba, the catastrophe in 1948, 750,000 people were forced out of their homes and not allowed to return. And so there's a lot of fear and there have been given no guarantees that anyone is going to be allowed to safely return to their homes at any point. And if there's no real belief that there will be safety in another place and a fear that they wouldn't be able to, to leave, then some people think it's better to take their chances, even though the risks to them are incredibly high because of the level of bombardment that's happening. What is your advice to your staff on the ground in terms of, 
if at any point they should evacuate? Is there, is there a line that might be crossed where you say, guys, you need to to get out. You need to try and find wherever is as safe as possible and forget about you know helping people on the ground. Is Will that moment ever be reached? We are supporting our staff uh, as much as we can and obviously supporting them to make their own decisions um, with regards to where they want to be. Clearly, the, the most important step that we took at the beginning of this is that nobody is going to our office. Our office has actually been damaged in, in Gaza City. It's been damaged in the bombardment. And so we've um, we've asked people not to uh, not to go there. But a lot of our staff have made the decision to, to flee and to leave to other places in the south um, where they believe that they'll be safer. And we've been supporting them in any way that we can whilst they are um, whilst they're displaced. Uh, and we'll continue to support them uh, in making their decisions. Um, and trying to help keep them safe. But clearly the only way to keep them safe is to end the bombardment. And that's why we're doing everything we can um, in terms of our you know, public communications and our, on our advocacy in any network that we can to say that actually this needs to stop the bombardment of these areas. It's not just some grim statistics about um, populations on the move. These are our colleagues, our friends, their families, um, people that we eat dinner with, people that we joke with. These are people who we care deeply about, whose lives are under threat. And um, we'll do everything that we, that's within our power to protect them, but there's only a limited amount that we can do. It really requires the international community to recognise that this can't go on forever. It needs to end soon and lives need to be protected. That was Rohan Talbot from Medical Aid for Palestinians talking to me earlier today. And we mentioned the importance of the international community standing against this. Um, of course, our Prime Minister forms part of that community. Um, let's go to some comment from Rishi Sunak. He gave this statement to the House of Commons earlier today. I believe we must support absolutely Israel's right to defend itself. Yeah. To go after Hamas, take back the hostages deter further incursions and strengthen its security for the long term. This must be done in line with international humanitarian law, but also recognising that they face a vicious enemy that embeds itself behind civilians. As a friend, we will continue to call on Israel to take every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. I repeat President Biden's words, as democracies, we are stronger and more secure when we act according to the rule of law. Amen. Humanity, law, decency, respect for human life. That's what sets us apart from the mindless violence of the terrorist. It just makes my skin, skin crawl listening to that. We, we have a situation where Israel has turned off the water to Gaza, right? When, when Israel does airstrikes on, on buildings, they say, oh, if it, if it kills whole families, they say, oh, it was Hamas using them as human shields. Now, I don't think there's really any evidence of that. I think it's people not really wanting to leave their homes because they don't know where else they're going to be safe, right? If they're also bombing hospitals and they're bombing schools, why leave your house, right? So there are going to be many people, well, there are many people who are getting killed by airstrikes. And I don't think it's because they're being held as human shields by Hamas. It's because they're in their flats where they live, right? And then, I mean, where it seems more obvious to me is that the water has been turned off. The electricity has been turned off. How can you say Hamas are using people as human shields when you've turned off water to everyone in Gaza? Right? Now, as Rohan said, Israel doesn't provide all the water to Gaza, so they've turned off the water that they provide to Gaza. But because they've also um, blockaded any fuel from getting in, that means that the sort of desalination plants where people um, or you know where, where you can convert seawater into drinking water, none of them are able to function. So you've got people who uh, who can't drink enough water to live 
And you're saying that's Hamas using them as human shields and everyone's being everyone's behaving very well. That's what sets us apart from the terrorists. I'm James Heapy. I'm one a bit further than um, Rishi Sunak. He's a government minister saying that Israel is balancing correctly attacking Hamas and protecting civilians, which to me is, is essentially an endorsement of turning the water off, right? And in that statement, Sunak also pledged that RAF aircraft and the Navy would be used to stop further arms entering the region. I presume that's not arms to Israel, which are the, the ones being used right now. Um, as well, obviously, there are rockets coming from Gaza as well, but the, the, the most damaging weapons right now are those being dropped by Israel on Gaza. Um, he also promised a further £10 million in humanitarian aid to Gaza. And this is what we're hearing from lots of Western politicians at the moment. Basically, they realised there was a little bit of pushback to them sort of saying, yes, war crimes. And now they're saying, I oh, will give a, a, a token amount of money to the Palestinians. Now, obviously, that's not that significant right now. The problem for Gaza isn't that Western governments aren't, you know, taking money out of their pockets and throwing it at them. It's that Western governments aren't putting pressure on Israel to stop the blockade. There are actually plenty of people who would happily donate money to Gazans. It can't get in. Right? We, we, they don't need £10 million from Rishi Sunak. What they need is pressure on the Israelis to lift the blockade. Let's go to our next story. Israel is committing war crimes in Gaza. They include the collective punishment of innocent Palestinians and the forced transfer of 1.2 million civilians from the north of the territory to the south. And yet reaction from senior British politicians has been pretty uncritical, if not outright supportive. There are a few dissenting voices, though, and perhaps surprisingly, the loudest have come from Tory MPs. Conservative MP Crispin Blunt is former chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. He's also co-director of the International Centre of Justice for Palestinians. Speaking on the BBC, he issued this warning to the government. The United Kingdom government has given unequivocal support to the State of Israel, a statement repeated by the Prime Minister yesterday. And I'm uncertain that they fully understand the implications of the developments of international law, whereby if you are encouraging uh, a party to uh, undertake a war crime, uh, you become uh, complicit uh, in that crime itself. And it's absolutely clear now that what is happening in Gaza does amount to a war crime because it is disproportionate um, and is, it is, does not uh, distinguish uh, the targets it is uh, taking out. Hence the terrible number of children that have been killed. And what we've just heard from the uh, World Health Organization and the concerns about the, uh, uh, the effect of the transfer on the hospitals. But you will know, you will know that they... A forced transfer of 1.2 million people is an absolute crime under the laws uh, of war. You are simply not allowed to do it, uh, as indeed is the uh, collective punishment of the people of Gaza uh, with the siege and the imposition of no food and no water and no electricity. Backing up Blunt's assessment of the situation, the International Centre of Justice for Palestinians wrote to Rishi Sunak over the weekend. In their letter, they gave Sunak notice of their intention to prosecute the UK government over, quote, their role in providing military, economic and political support to Israel, which has aided Israel's perpetration of war crimes. In a separate interview on Sky, Blunt went further, accusing the government of complicity in Israeli war crimes. The government has said that uh, they support Israel's right to defend itself. Of course, itself. of course, but it must be within well, the international law. Okay, so where is the complicity here on on the part? Because the because um, if you know that a party is going to commit a war crime, and this forcible transfer of people is a precise breach of one of the statutes 
that uh, governs international law and all states in this area, uh, then you are making yourself complicit. And uh, as international law has developed in, in this area, uh, your, the fact of being complicit makes you equally guilty to the party carrying out the crime. Um, and so, and this is really how, this is now the last defence uh, for Palestinians in, in this situation, is that uh, international law will then begin to operate, make international leaders conscious of their duties under international law, and the fact that they, in the end, they can't ignore it. Um, and they ought to be acting uh, to restrain uh, our ally from taking actions that are breaches of international so law. So that is what you're warning the Prime Minister, mm. that you're saying that that is what he and other government ministers well, it goes beyond, must do. It, I mean, it goes beyond government ministers. Indeed, any politician who is then uh, egging uh, in the extent of Israel on to breach international law and support Israel uh, in the conduct of this operation, of course our hearts will go out to uh, the State of Israel and the people left, the appalling atrocity uh, committed on it. But uh, what we're not allowed to do is witness one crime being piled on with another, um, which is simply going to make the situation worse, but it's also fundamentally wrong. Now, I don't think there are many ordinary members of the British public who watch that and think, oh my God, Crispin Blunt, what an apologist for terror, right? He's making a very principled stance, which I think is very common sense, which is to say, yes, Hamas's atrocities were atrocities. They were terrible. At the same time, you don't pile war crimes on war crimes. A war crime doesn't justify a war crime. He's brave enough to say it. Now, obviously, he's a backbench MP. He's not trying to win a majority at the next general election. But I really don't think that Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, would be punished by the electorate for saying what Crispin Blunt is saying right there. It is also interesting, actually, that you know we, we have seen these sort of legal letters to, to Sunak and Starmer. Potentially, they are making a difference because their tone has changed this week compared to last week. Also, lots of people actually now saying writing to your MP might be worth it right now. Now, we don't often say, you know, it's probably worth writing to your MP, but I think on this issue, because UK leaders have been so outrageous, I do think that there are lots of right-thinking people who, who are outraged, and I think it's good um, to remind your representatives of that. Um, Crispin Blunt isn't the only Tory MP calling for Israel to back away from war crimes either. Now, the current chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Alicia Kearns, told LBC this about Israel's siege of Gaza. Do you think that Israel should turn back on the water and turn back on the electricity? I believe they have to because they have a duty under international humanitarian law to make sure that people can access medical aid and support. That cannot currently be done. And the Egyptians can't open the Rafa crossing again, as it's called, because it was bombarded. It was bombed by Israel. They need to reopen it. The Egyptians have already said that they will take all the humanitarian people aid people want to get into, is, uh, into Gaza. They will take it from their airport. But they need assurances from Israel that no humanitarian convoy will be bombed. This is something the UK can do. We can work with our Israeli partners. We've deployed ships to help them with the risk of transnational terror mm. and support from other terrorist groups around the world. But we can also be a friend and say, let's get the Rafa crossing open, because mm. that's also how we get British nationals out who are stuck in Gaza, particularly the doctors who will have been out there volunteering. We get the humanitarian aid in, but no one else can switch back on water apart from the Israelis. And they do have a duty to, I believe, under international humanitarian law, because they control the airspace of Gaza, they control the coastal access, and they have blockaded it. And so, in effect, I believe that they have that duty. 
again, a completely common sense position. And I suppose because these are backbench MPs, you know, senior backbench MPs, they chair the relevant committee, but they're not constantly focus grouping their answers. I assume with Keir Starmer, that's what's going on. They're focus grouping their answers. I mean, I think with him, it's actually that he's, he's terrified of the people who called Labour anti-Semitic beforehand. Now he wants to sort of say, no, we're de- definitely we're 100% backing Israel. He also wants to distinguish himself from Jeremy Corbyn. But in any case, when the stakes are this high, I find that quite despicable. Let's go to Cairns again, because speaking on the News Agents podcast, um, she made this wider point. Israel has to defeat Hamas, not just in the interest of the people of Israel, but actually the wider region. But that is therefore difficult, because what you don't want to be seen to be is somehow not supportive of Israel, particularly given all that they have been through. But, you know, but I believe as a politician, you also have a duty to give those difficult messages, to say that humanitarian law is not something you opt in and out of, and that we have a duty as Britain to be tough with our friends and put those messages across. But that's the point, isn't it? Because can it be right? It is clear, as you say, Hamas wants to wipe Israel off the map. But it cannot be right that in response to that, Israel wipes Gaza off the map. Yeah. And this is the problem. This is a counter-terrorism operation. I think it's really important that that's how we should be talking about it. This isn't a war on Palestine. This has to be a counter-terrorism operation, which is difficult. You know, Hamas is hiding out amongst civilians, but we've dealt with that in the past. What do you make of the fact that these two Tory backbenchers are sort of speaking the most sense of, I think, anyone in, in, in the House of Commons at the moment? Well, thank God for them, Michael. Uh, I think it's pretty extraordinary. And thank God they're not Labour MPs. Because, of course, if they were, then there would be cause for them to lose the whip uh, and for Keir Starmer to, to, to remove them. And that they have no place in the public conversation. But because they're in the Conservative Party, where there is actually, when it comes to the internal party operation, a measure of democracy, there is not such a centralisation of power that they can just get rid of people willy-nilly. When they did, like under Boris Johnson in 2019, it caused a furore. You know, it happened, but there was an uproar. When it happens in Labour, you know, the media cheer it on. I think actually this really underscores the importance of not having over-centralisation at Westminster, not allowing the party leaders of our two main parties to effectively, to effectively become demigods and determine who can say what, where and when. Um, and that's because sometimes both parties have a consensus on an issue, like with Iraq, like here right now with Gaza, in terms of supporting Israel and committing, frankly, war crimes, they're both wrong. And the problem with the two-party system is, Michael, that that doesn't really leave much space for dissenting voices. Dissenting voices can be right. And so when you have two parties, you need to also have a culture and an acceptance of the fact that the two leaders won't always make the right calls. Uh, And this idea that you have just two parties and that the leaders are effectively presidential-style figures It is really anti-democratic, not undemocratic, anti-democratic. So thank God for these two people. And I'll I'll say this again, it would be inconceivable, it would be inconceivable for a Labour MP to be involved in efforts to potentially charge leading politicians, including the Prime Minister, with aiding and abetting war crimes, which is precisely what is happening with a Conservative MP right now. So thank goodness for them. But I also think this really highlights the problems of what our media class has been calling for in Labour, which is give Keir Starmer all the power, that makes him electable, that's the only way Labour can do politics if they want to be grown up, and bugger the rest, bugger the backbenches, no dissent, um, you know, they have to toe the line or they're out. That's not good for Labour, it's not good for the country. Let's move on to Labour, because those messages you just heard calling for de-escalation and respect for international law from senior backbench Tories are the kind of thing you would, in theory, hope to hear 
from Labour. But instead, both Keir Starmer and Shadow Attorney General Emily Formbury have refused to condemn Israel's actions in Gaza, with Starmer even saying Israel has the right to withhold power and water from the Strip. And ahead of Palestinian solidarity protests that took place across the UK at the weekend, the party sent this letter to its local Labour Party groups. They said, There will be a number of protests and demonstrations taking place over the weekend. Elected representatives have been given strong advice not to attend any of these events, and I would urge you to exercise similar caution. Not only is this in the interest of our members' safety, but also to avoid placing colleagues in a position where they may share a platform with or are close to individuals that threaten to undermine the values and principles of the Labour Party. I'm not sure why it would be, you know, for individuals' safety. Now, I was actually away this weekend, so I didn't go to the Palestine demo, but many of my friends did, many of my colleagues did. Um, And I haven't heard from any of them that it was a particularly dangerous place. I mean, I did see one... Um, video on on Twitter that looked somewhat unpleasant, but I mean there were 150,000 people on this demo, so the idea it was dangerous to attend seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. On the BBC, Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy gave this justification for that advice to elected officials. It's important that as we face and want to be the next government, that people do not share platforms with people who do not share Labour values, that they're careful and cautious, and we've seen uh, Labour members of Parliament exercise that caution over the last few days. And I think that must be right. So are you saying, because again, I want to be clear, if you're a Labour MP or Labour councillor, you shouldn't go, for example, to a pro-Palestinian rally? If you're a Labour MP, you should always be careful whom you share platforms with at this moment. And you should be very careful that you do nothing to drive division in our communities. There's a rise in anti-Semitism, there's a rise in Islamophobia in our country as I speak. And are you saying- as an MP, in a position of responsibility, you do everything to minimize those who would sow division. And are you saying they can't go to a pro-Israel rally? Guidance has gone out. It's very clear what that guidance is. People have a right to protest in our country. It's a right we defend because we're a democracy, just as we defend the rule of law and international law. So people have the right to protest. But we as leaders in our community should be very judicious and careful, I think, at this time. That's the right thing to do. And it's particularly the right thing to do if you hope one day to be the government. Listen to in isolation, right? I do agree with that statement, but it doesn't disagree. Sorry, I do disagree with that statement, listen to in isolation, but it doesn't, you know, disgust me. What disgusts me is listening to that statement with the knowledge of what the Labour Party have been saying over the past week, right? So if you were really concerned with community cohesion and not being seen to take a side and sort of bringing people together, you would say, yes, what we saw in Israel is tragic. You know, those attacks on civilians were despicable. Also, what we are seeing in Gaza is disgusting and attacks on civilians are despicable. Instead, what we've seen, and we've been talking about this over the past week, we've we've put out videos on this. You've had Keir Starmer asked, do you have any thoughts at all about Gaza? And he said, oh, no one wants to see this, but I 100% stand um, in solidarity with Israel who have a right to defend themselves. Labour have been taking sides. You know, there is no way that anyone could possibly argue that they have been somewhat judicious in terms of siding with one side or another in what is a very long conflict, war, oppression, occupation. Now we're seeing, you know, the collective punishment of a lot of people and a lot of people for whom, you know, their destiny matters a lot to members of the British public. 
Right now, you can talk about it in terms of religious or ethnic communities. Obviously, on that demo, you've got people from all different sorts of backgrounds. There are a lot of people in the country who care about the Palestinians, who care about the Gazans. And I think it was pretty goddamn divisive for Keir Starmer to tour the studios last week. David Lammy did it as well and basically said, we don't give a damn about these Gazans, right? Turn off their water. Yeah, go for it. You know, Israel has a right to defend itself. Turn off their electricity. Go for it. Israel has a right to defend themselves. Do you oppose bombing civilian flats? Well, war is messy, right? That is not a judicious response, which gives due respect to the fact that this is a highly charged issue in this country, which has the potential to divide communities, right? And if you don't want to divide communities, the thing you don't do is side entirely with one and dismiss the other, which is what the Labour leadership have done over the past week or so. Now, as far as we're aware, not a single Labour MP turned up to any of those protests. I mean, we might be wrong, but it doesn't seem as if um, they did. Um, other elected Labour officials have shown um, a bit more backbone, though. Shyster Aziz and Amal Latif were Labour councillors for Oxford until this weekend when they resigned. Um, they said this, we are deeply disappointed and alarmed at the Labour Party or the Labour Party leader, Keir Starmer's comments, seeming to condone the use of collective punishment against the people of Gaza in direct contravention of international law. We have sought to seek urgent clarification regarding these statements from both the national and local leadership. Unfortunately, as no clarification has been forthcoming, we have made a conscious decision to immediately resign the whip and leave the Labour Party. In Stroud, Labour councillor Jesse Hoskin has also quit over Starmer's comments, saying this. Two million Palestinians in Gaza who had nothing to do with Hamas's actions should not be punished collectively for it. We are witnessing atrocities. I have not had the support of other Stroud district Labour councillors in unequivocally distancing myself from comments made by Keir Starmer and senior shadow ministers supporting war crimes against Palestinian people. In his BBC interview, Lamy was given an opportunity to condemn Israel for the forced transfer of Gazans to the south of the territory. Do you support the order to move them or not? The order to move them? Well, yeah. clearly... Just yes it, or no? It's not a yes or no, Victoria. I'm, I'm hoping one day to be Foreign Secretary and, and achieve diplomats. So it's not a yes or no. Why let not? Me, Why let not? Me, can I answer the question? Please. Very simply. This is a war situation. War is ugly. Yes. Very, very sadly, people die. We have rules. And those rules mean that you must minimise death. Now, you know, and I know, because Netanyahu has said that there will be an invasion shortly against that backdrop. Of course it's right that civilians must not be in harm's way. And an order has been issued. Okay. I'm glad that that order has been extended. Of course I am. But, this, but what I, the point I want to get across is that it's hugely important that we minimise the loss of human life. Right. And anyone well, let, let, seeing talk, those scenes from Gaza, it's horrendous law. for those people that are facing that at this point in time. The UN Human Rights Commissioner says the imposition of sieges that endanger the lives of civilians is prohibited under international humanitarian law. Keir Starmer, your leader, a human rights lawyer, says Israel does have the right to impose a siege. Who is right? In situations of war, where there are allegations of war crimes, that must ultimately be a matter for the UN and its agencies no. and for the ICC. No. I'm sorry, Victoria, that is the case. This is not a moment no, for me to pass judgment we're about not, whether we're I'm not, not suggesting here as a lawyer. War crimes. And I'm nor, here as neither was the UN Secretary. Human Rights Commissioner. He was saying it's breaking international law and to he's impose entitled a siege. To his view. It's not a, it's he's not entitled a view. To his view. It's not just plucked an opinion out of the air. He's looking at the framework, the Geneva Conventions. He says the imposition of sieges which endangers the lives of civilians, is prohibited under international humanitarian law. Keir Starmer says Israel has a right to impose a siege. 
I don't... Who is right? Keir Starmer has said right from the beginning that any war, it's important that democracies uphold the rules-based order and that that must be within international law. And He's I'm said simply that asking from the beginning. You. Yep, his yep. statement I'm, today, I'm simply his asking statement you today says that people should have access. Law. And I have said to you, Victoria, I'm not here as an international lawyer. That is a determinant of the UN and its agencies and the ICC. It's not a determination okay. for me. Well, the UN did say that a siege breaks international law. It's collective punishment, right? It's just, it, it, it was a very, very cowardly answer, I think. And the reason I say that is this. He says, oh, if war crimes are committed, that's something for an international tribunal. Now, an international tribunal, that's going to happen. Well, it probably will never happen because it always gets blocked by the United States or a Security Council member. And so it's, it's never the case that Israel does go to the ICC. Um, but even if it were, that would be a long way down the line. Now, you are a politician. You have influence right now. It, it, it's no good to say, oh, yeah, it could be a war crime. Might be. Who knows? I've got nothing to say about this. We'll leave it to the lawyers in a few years' time. You are a very high-profile politician. You can intervene in the present. You can't say, oh, this is something, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work it all out down the line. No, this is happening right now. You have influence. Do something with that influence. It's just so, so pathetic. And, you know, to see that sort of dismissive attitude towards something which the UN is saying, it's very Tony Blair, right? It was the Labour Party, let's not forget, who went to Iraq. You know, one of the things I put about Keir Starmer, actually, he was against the Iraq war. He was a human rights lawyer. I was like, yeah, he's not going to stand up to vested interests, but presumably he's not going to be so wantonly addicted to the idea of international intervention and so dismissive of international norms and just, you know, a lackey to, to the US. Presumably he'd be, you know, have a little bit more backbone. I can't imagine him have been really been any worse in this situation, right? Can you imagine in that Keir Starmer leadership election to, to Labour members, if people have been told that, oh, imagine you're in this situation where the Israelis have turned off the entire water supply to the Gaza Strip and are blockading any energy so their desalination plants don't work. Keir Starmer says, yep, fine with that. But he's, he is as bad as new Labour now when it comes to international politics, which is just, I mean, incredibly depressing as a situation. And the International Centre of Justice for Palestinians has written to Keir Starmer as well as um, to the Prime Minister, um, Emily Formby and David Lammy as well. Um, he, they say this, This morning, ICJP issued Keir Starmer, Emily Formby and David Lammy with a notice of intention to prosecute UK politicians for their role in aiding and abetting Israel's perpetration of war crimes. ICJP demands that the Labour Party leadership and UK politicians more broadly must call for an immediate ceasefire call for an end to Israel's illegal siege and evacuation order for North Gaza, condemn Israel's war crimes and crimes against humanity. They should then press the government into immediate action to do the same. Aaron, it's pretty depressing, this, isn't it? I mean, they do sound a lot like New Labour in the run-up to the Iraq war. Entirely, Michael. Entirely. And it's something we've talked about a lot. You know, you really cannot underprice the possibility of a Labour government under Keir Starmer taking this country into some kind of conflict after 2024. Domestically, I think it's inarguable that Labour is a better bet than the Tories. I don't have to be particularly transformational to think that. You might think they might uh, administer decline slightly better. Fine. I mean, I think that's probably what would be the case. But on foreign policy, it's perfectly possible that a Labour government is far more hawkish and ties itself far more closely to what the American government wants, what the State Department wants, and the demands of the so-called Western alliance. That is highly likely. And so it's important right now, I think, for the left, and including people inside the Labour Party, to get on top of that, to get ahead of it. Uh, because otherwise, yes, you may see something like a repeat of Iraq. 
You could. Because remember, of course, we're living in a time now, the second half of the 2020s, where we're seeing the return of great power politics. We're seeing the rise of China, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, ethnic cleansing in Nagorno-Karabakh, the harm between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and now, of course, Israel and Iran too. So it's an incredibly volatile moment geopolitically. And what's become clear to me over the, over the last week, really, is the inability of Labour, particularly its leadership, to deal with these things seriously. Everything Keir Starmer does or David Lammy does is for domestic consumption and to appease press barons and to appeal to the financial lobby in this country. Uh, so they want to get big money donors, big corporates, be seen as a safe pair of hands for the UK defence exports industry and for its military and for US foreign policy. To, ha- to hell with what's right, to hell with what most people in this country actually want, and to hell with, you know, actually even Britain's foreign policy interests, frankly. Because if you look at what's happened over the last week, the unflinching support that's come from the EU, the UK and the United States for Israel in regards to what it's doing in Gaza, not in regards to the 1,200 people who were killed, but in regards to what's happening in Gaza, has completely undermined their diplomatic efforts regarding Ukraine and elsewhere uh, over the course of the last three years. Because if you're a middle-class Ukrainian or Taiwanese, you look at this, what's going on in Gaza, and your conclusion is quite simple. The United States, the EU, and the UK believe in might is right. In other words, when push comes to shove, we haven't got a chance. Uh, And so I don't really understand it in terms of its own internal coherence. And and I think it shows how politically myopic Labour are on these immensely important questions on foreign policy. You know, I don't think they're myopic and stupid on public ownership of water. I disagree with them. But I don't think they're going to arrive at a a political settlement which is more destructive than what the Tories are responsible for. On foreign policy, that is most certainly the case. Let's go to our next story. Zippy Hotavelli is the Israeli ambassador to the UK. She has spoken to Sky News and given one of the most chilling interviews I've ever seen. What's the view on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza this morning? Uh, There is no humanitarian crisis because... There isn't. There is no. Uh, Israel is in charge of the safety of the Israelis. Hamas is in charge of the safety of the Palestinians. There is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza, and Hamas is responsible for the safety of Palestinians. Now, Israeli bombs have already killed almost 800 children in Gaza. Israel has shut off running water to 2 million people in Gaza. Israel has also shut off the electricity supply, meaning the desalination plants can't function, so there's no other way to get water in Gaza. Journalists, medics and UN workers are being killed. Yet there's no humanitarian crisis. No humanitarian crisis. This is not a fringe pundit. This is the Israeli ambassador to the UK. This is the representative of the Israeli government to the UK who is saying there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. It's completely sick and it actually gets worse. We've been showing pictures this morning that would illustrate that there is a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Are you a mother? Yes. What would you think if your children would have been executed in front of your eyes? Would you expect your government to think about those Nazis committing those crimes and to say, wait a second, first of all, we need to protect the enemy and then to protect my children? Your children come as priority to your prime minister. 
does the Israeli ambassador not think that Palestinians also have children, right? Are there not Palestinian mothers who care deeply about their kids? Or is Zippy Hotavelli suggesting every man, woman, and child in Gaza is a Nazi? Because if she is, that's the language of genocide. No, when Vladimir Putin says that kind of thing, our whole media rightly says that's the language of genocide. When he says Ukrainians are Nazis, so they're fair game, we think that's the language of genocide. And the mainstream media thinks that's the language of genocide. When an Israeli ambassador says it, that's normal. That's normal. That's sickening. That's disgusting. Let's go to another moment in the interview. Never in the past we had such a clear-cut war of good versus evil, of people that are slaughtering babies versus people that are protecting their children in a shelter. Everyone saw the Israeli parents protecting the children in the shelters, and everyone saw the horrific footages of those beheaded babies, this horror created by Hamas terrorists. So this is such a clear-cut war. Now, we haven't all seen footage of babies being beheaded, right? No international media outlet has confirmed it happened. Now, massacres did happen. Obviously, massacres did happen. It's not a question, oh, if, 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 if no babies were beheaded, that means what Hamas did was fine. Absolutely not. But if you are the Israeli ambassador, right, then when you are going on the television, you should say stuff which is verified, which has evidence. You can't just go on there and say, everyone has seen this when no one has seen this, right? Well, maybe, maybe someone in the world has seen it. I don't know. But no international media has verified this, which means that I've got no reason to think it's true, right? It's also true. She says, Israeli mothers were protecting their babies in shelters. That was awful. These are awful things. I have every sympathy for Israeli mothers sheltering their kids in shelters. Does Zippy Hotavelli not think Palestinian mothers also protect their babies when they are being attacked, right? It's not just Israelis protecting their babies. They're also Palestinians protecting their babies, right? They're less likely to have shelters, in fact. And they are being bombed by one of the most powerful militaries in the world, day after day after day after day. Again, remember, this isn't just a fringe pundit on right-wing TV. This is Israel's official representative to the UK. Now, I want to just show one more answer from Hotelevi, as it really shows um, how the Western powers are implicated in Israel's callous attitude towards Palestinians in Gaza. She's asked about what peace might look like, and she says this. The only solution that is at the moment at the table is the safety of the children of Israel. You don't speak about peace with Germany when the Germans are attacking all Western Europe. This is the reality we're in. Think about Churchill in his, in his moment when all Europe surrounded and he had to stand still and to say, no, this is a pure evil. First of all, we need to defeat the pure evil. And then in the future, we need to speak about future peace. Chamberlain and Churchill were the two paths that Britain had during the Second World War. Everyone know how Chamberlain's attempts for peace were failed, and sometimes you need just to fight evil. And I think this is the moment where we're fighting pure evil, and, and the Americans know. This okay. is why they're projecting so much support, and the British know. This is why they're supporting us. So two points I wanted to make here, right? So I think you will agree with me that interview was sick. Right, someone saying that there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Someone saying that if you're a mother, you you must accept that we have to pound Gaza with six thousand bombs over a five day period, which is what the Israelis have done. Right, completely ignoring the fact that there are also Palestinian mothers, there are also Palestinian children. Basically saying that everyone in Gaza is a Nazi. Right, these are incredibly extreme. This is genocidal language. And then she is saying at the end, and you know, this is why the U.S. and the U.K. are supporting us. This is why we're being backed. So. Um, profoundly, so enthusiastically by the West. 
And that's kind of the one part of the interview where she wasn't lying, right? It is true that Israel are being backed by the West, that they're being backed by the United States, they're being backed by the UK. You've got this country where their official representative to the UK is speaking in genocidal language, lying outright, essentially, lying, especially when it comes to there not being any humanitarian crisis in Gaza. God, you have to be an idiot to not recognize that that's a complete lie. And she is saying, yes, and we have the backing of the US and the UK, and essentially that's why we feel so confident in this war of good versus evil. The second thing I wanted to mention is this, this World War II analogy, which keeps being put forward by representatives of, of Israel and sort of their, their supporters, which is to say, just as in the Second World War, you had to go into sort of a total war against the Nazis. We have to do that against Hamas. Now, she mentioned Dresden earlier in that interview, and it's, you know, it's been noted that actually you know, people have now reassessed whether or not the, the, the flattening of Dresden was proportionate, given how many civilians it killed. Separate from that, this is not analogous to the Second World War. Hamas are not analogous to the Nazis. And I don't say that because of their ideology. I, I, I don't know enough about Hamas's ideology to sort of say whether or not it borders on Nazism. But what I do know is their power, their influence. Hamas is an organization in an open-air prison, which has, you know, it's, it's got more military capabilities than we thought it did a couple of weeks ago, but it is not an existential threat to Israel. Israel is the most powerful military in the Middle East, right? There has been this, this, this tragedy which has impacted many, many Israelis, and perfectly understandably, Israelis and the Israeli government don't want this to happen again. But that doesn't make Hamas uh, 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 an existential threat to Israel like Hitler and the Nazis were an existential threat to Europe. It's so clearly a misanalogy and a misanalogy being used to say any means necessary we can use to destroy Hamas. Now, it's a bit similar to the language which was used by, you know, some people who I think made, you know, have made a, a call which is hard to justify when it comes to Hamas's actions to say any means necessary this is a, 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 an occupied people resisting an occupier. Now, obviously, occupied people do have the right to resist an occupier, including by using arms. I would say that doesn't include massacring civilians at a music festival. Now, if you're on the side where you're more sympathetic to the idea of sort of Israel's security being the priority, yes, you might say Israel has a right now to take some military action against Gaza. I, I, I would say that's actually questionable because they are an occupying force. But if you were to take that position, I would hope you also take the position that they should follow the rules of law when they do it. Just as Hamas attacking civilians was a disaster, Israel, Israelis attacking civilians is also a, a disaster. But the Israelis don't want you to think that. And I mean, it seems like Western leaders don't really want you to think that either. They don't want the Israelis to think that either. Aaron, what did you make of that interview? As I say, it's, it's not a fringe person, the official representative of Israel to the UK saying that dangerous nonsense. Yeah, I mean, firstly, on the World War II analogy, Michael, it's hugely interesting, isn't it? Because when, first of all, Chamberlain takes Britain into the Second World War, you know, he leaves office in 1940, shortly before Dunkirk. Um, he also remilitarized, you know, he gets a very hard press, actually. Remilitarized Britain to a pretty extraordinary extent. He was the guy that signed off on Spitfires. So this idea that Chamberlain's a peacenik and Churchill was a wartime leader, I mean, we, we have that history because literally Churchill wrote it. Um, and in terms of comparing Palestine, like you say, Michael, to the German war machine in the Second World War, probably the most impressive military ever. This is, a, this is the Wehrmacht take over continental Europe in a matter of, what, 18 months, uh, even less than that. They rout the French army, at that point considered the world's most powerful. People don't really talk about this now. In 1940, the French army was considered the world's most powerful. 
they route it in, I think, six to seven weeks. So the idea that you're comparing, even Hamas, right? You don't need to talk about the Palestinian people, civilians, the people that are actually really suffering right now. Even Hamas, the idea that that is somehow analogous to the Wehrmacht, that is somehow analogous to one of the most powerful armies in the history of humankind, is so stupid, it would only be uttered by a complete idiot and it would only remain unchallenged on the British media. It is so stupid. It is so entirely stupid and so disproportionate the actual reality of the situation, you know, it's just a normal, healthy person would just dismiss it if this person's a charlatan. It's hyperbole, it's nonsense. But, you know, if it's BBC or Sky or LBC, you know, it's, a really, it's a really interesting point, very powerful analogy there to the Second World War. You know, not every conflict is the Second World War, but of all the conflicts that least resemble the Second World War, this is it. And actually, I want to say this as well for people from the left, they've compared this for, uh, in terms of Israel-Palestine, to British in India or, you know, apartheid South Africa. Very different. Because in apartheid South Africa, you have an overwhelming majority of people are like South Africans. Or in India, you have, you know, I think 300 million Indians in, in, in 1945, when it approximately takes independence really around the time of the Second World War, 300 million Indians. And, and fundamentally, you have British um, service personnel and administrators in the tens of thousands, right? 100,000. So you cannot compare what is a, you'd call this Israel a garrison state. It's one of the most militarized countries on earth. They're amassing an army of 300,000 people. Michael, they only have a population of 10 million, 300,000. You know, that is like this country having an army of like 2.5 million people. They have nuclear weapons and they're dealing with a non-state actor, which is making missiles and projectiles. The missiles that are being sent towards Israel apparently cost around $600 to make. Meanwhile, Israel has the world's most sophisticated drone industry, drone manufacturing industry. Israel is the world's number one sort of innovator in terms of manufacturing uh, drones. So this idea that Palestine is analogous to the, the Third Reich and that Israel is analogous to the UK is so incredibly cretinous, Michael. I mean, it, in a way, it's useful because you can just dismiss it and say, well, these people aren't serious, you know. Um, and, and, and I'll finish with this as an ancillary point. Who are they trying to persuade with that kind of logic? They're clearly not trying to persuade anybody sensible, right? Well, what they are trying to do is go direct to the kinds of people who run this country, who only deal with historical analogies, who think everybody is Adolf Hitler Mark II, uh, and are actually deeply ill-equipped to oversee foreign policy and geopolitics in the 21st century. Aaron will be back tomorrow to host the live show. Thank you for joining me so much this evening. Cheers, Michael. And tomorrow you'll be joined by James Butler, who'll be making a return to the show. Um, let's wrap up there. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.